book of Philippians chapter 3. We'll be looking specifically at verses 7 through 11. And uh, that's on page 981 if you would like to use a church Bible that should be on your pew there next to you or near you. Um, Philippians chapter 3. Um, we've all seen it in movies or Maybe some of you have done this. I'd love to see a show of hands of the guys in here especially who have done this. Maybe some of you ladies have done this too. But, you know, there's this, a table and it's beautifully set. Uh, there's these beautiful dishes on that table. And they're all stacked up and, and the place sets and everything's looking great. And then you see this guy as he comes in and it's a little sparkle in his eye. And he walks over and he grabs a tablecloth and he goes, like that. And you're like, ah! but then it's all there still. What's all there? What's all that about? Well, you can thank Sir Isaac Newton for helping us understand this scientifically. Um, the way the table uh, uh, sorry, the way the tablecloth trick works is because of something called inertia. In the first of the three laws of motion that Newton described, he described inertia as the tendency of an object at rest to remain at rest until a force acts upon that object to move. Inertia for an object in motion is the tendency for that object to remain in motion unless a force on it um, acts to speed it up, to slow it down, to stop it, or to change its direction. In terms of the tablecloth uh, trick, inertia is key. Uh, the inertia of the stuff on the table keeps them where they are, despite the speeding tablecloth underneath them. Now, you may say, thank you for that interesting little science lesson today, Patrick. What does that have to do with our study? Well, there's another component to the tablecloth trick. And it comes sometimes with great comedy. Because sometimes what we've seen is someone come in and they grab that tablecloth and what happens? Grandmother's dishes are broken to smithereens all over the place. I watched a couple of YouTube's because, you know, that's what I do. I sit around and I go, I think of these illustrations. I'm like, I'd like to see someone do this. So I saw these guys. My favorite one, I think it's made up, is these little kids. And they do it where they pull the thing out, but the boy bumps into his brother. His brother bumps into a couple bookcases. And the bookcases fall on the table and crash everything. And I'm sitting there thinking, is that poor kid going to live? I don't think he will. But anyway, I read a little bit later. I was like, that's fabulous. But I read, it looks like it's been, it was just set up that way. So what's going on with that? What would cause the, the, the whole set to crash? Well, it's a thing called friction. Friction. So when you have the, the objects, the plate, the bowl, the cup, the utensils, and all the rest, and you pull the tablecloth out, there is friction between the cloth and the bottom of the dishes. And, and, if it, and if it's too strong, it will pull the dishes off and then poosh, you have this huge mess. So we will see in our passage today as we read it that the gospel of Jesus Christ was a friction in Paul's life to destroy his treasures that he held on to. Let's look at the passage from Philippians chapter 3, 7 through 11 as Paul directs our path to a crucial reality that he wants us to see. Verse 7, But whatever 
gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because it's a passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its truth to us. We ask simply that you make it real in our hearts and minds. That it be real in our everyday lives. Thank you, Father. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray this. Amen. Christ is the greatest treasure we have ever been given. Christ is the greatest treasure we could ever know. And so this morning, we're going to look at how this reality came into Paul's life and what it means for us as well. So we're going to look at, first of all, a a treasure worth losing. Second of all, a treasure of greater worth. And then third, a treasure worthy of knowing. So when we think about the treasure worth losing, last week we looked at Paul's greatest treasure, what he had called his confidence in the flesh. If you go back up and look in the text to to verse 4, he says, if anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. There's no one that has more confidence in the flesh than Paul, he's saying. Now he says this, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Above all else, and in the greatest sense, Paul was a Jewish Pharisee. His life revolved around this fact. It was his treasure. It was his source of pride. It was his confidence in the flesh. It was what made him what he was and who he was. To get a better picture of what this looks like, um, you could go into the, the parable that Jesus told in Luke 8, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And, and you'll remember there in verse 11 of, of, of Luke 18, there's two men and, and they're at the temple and they're praying, this Pharisee and this tax collector, and the Pharisee is standing by himself. And this is how he prayed. This is what Jesus said. God, I thank you then I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Do you get the idea of what Jesus is saying here? If you don't, you could go to verse 9, because Jesus, as He's telling this, this parable, he sets it up this way. He sets it up as those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with content. That was the life of Paul. I am righteous and I am wholly righteous. 
As Dr. Sinclair Ferguson says, in both the Old and New Testament periods, the religion of grace was all true, too frequently turned into externalism. A legalistic spirit and a presumption that God would be gracious because who, of who His people were and what they had done. And that's Paul. I am who I am. God is, but it's me. It's all about me and my righteousness. And this, my friends, was who he was. And notice, was is the key word here. Because if you look at verse 7, Paul says, But whatever I gain, I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So He has come from this place of superiority, of superconfidence, of, of I have abided in, in the law and I am righteous in light of that, to friction. What caused this friction that ripped down not only his greatest treasure, but ultimately everything to the ground that he counted it as lost, willing to forfeit it, seeing it even as rubbish. What caused that? Before we look at that, let's be reminded about rubbish for a minute, because I think it helps inform the text here for us. There's, there's a deeper level here. Um, the, the word rubbish is, is, and it sounds like it's a great word. I love this word. It's scubula. Scubula. It sounds like Scooby-Doo or something like that. It's scubula. So it's scubula in the Greek, and it only occurs here in the Bible. And it's been translated as, as rubbish, garbage, refuge, and dung. Dr. Wallace has a great word study on this. And you can find this on Bible.org. And if you want to see how you should do a great word study... You can look at that and see how he laid everything out. It's short, but it's also very deep and detailed. And so Dr. Wallace says that scubula conveys both revulsion and worthlessness in this context. In Hellenistic Greek, it seems to stand somewhere between crap and the S-word. That's what he's saying here. Okay? Between crap and the S-word, Dr. Wallace says, due to the English sensibilities, dung is most appropriate. Sometimes I wish we had the, the curse word Bible, you know, so you could really see what's going on there. You know, what is he really saying in this text? The most important thing here, though, is not to miss the connotations. While the most modern translations see this only as implying worthlessness, Paul's view of his former life is odious to him. It's odious to him. And so the best translation, therefore, is one that picks up on both the revulsion along with a certain shock value. So there's a story that a friend of mine, his mom was telling once, you know how you're sitting around, you're telling stories, and, and all this crazy stuff goes on. And, and the mom said this, when you were a little boy, your dad would change your diaper, and he'd start gagging. <coughs> you know, I don't know, is anybody in here like dads ever gag at changing diapers? I wonder. Okay, he's gagging. So, so she said, what was really funny is, is about a month into that, every time somebody would go to change your diaper, you'd go <laughs> like that, you know. <laughs> and, and so if you get it, that's the thing. That nasty smell, odious smell, the, the human excrement. And that's what Paul is comparing these things to. 
So again, what is this friction that ripped down not only the greatest treasure to the ground, but ultimately everything, so that it is counted as loss, so it is counted as forfeit, so it is revolting, odious dung that he is willing to forfeit. Well, we have to look at something even greater, don't we? We have to look at a greater treasure, don't we? We have to look at a treasure that someone would say, that's a great treasure. I'll get rid of everything I have just to own that treasure. That's the treasure he points to here. So let's look at the treasure of greater worth. You can see, if you're really paying attention to this, as Paul's writing, and he's writing again to his beloved Philippians, he's, he's, you know, he's very... Um, connected to them. They have always supported him. There's great love between them. And as he is writing this, he is looking to something in his life that led to a radical transvaluation of his values. Something that literally, you know, using this same illustration, pulled the rug out from under his own, his own legs. You know, just, he just had the rug pulled out from under him. And so what was it? Well, it's spoken of in several places in the Scriptures here. But if you remember, specifically from Acts chapter 9, when Paul's name was still Saul, he was breathing down the necks of the disciples of Jesus. He and his cronies had just killed Stephen. They had stoned him to death. And so he's hungry for more blood. He's hungry to go after the Christians. And so he went to the chief priests. He got arrest warrants to take to the meeting places in Damascus so that if he found anyone there belonging to what was called in the Scriptures the way, whether men or women, he could arrest them and bring them to Jerusalem. So he set off with all this in mind. However, if you remember the story, when he got to the outskirts of Damascus, he was suddenly dazed by a blinding flash of light. And he fell to the ground and he heard these words that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul said, Who are you, Master? Who are you? And he says, I am Jesus. Notice the words that he says, the one you're hunting down. He's not saying, you're hunting my people. He says, the one you're hunting down. He's making this personal. The one you're hunting down. I want you to get up and go into the city, and there you'll be told what to do next. Wow. So Paul and his, is, is dumbfounded, and his companions are even more dumbfounded because they could hear the sound, but they couldn't see anyone. And so Paul picks himself off the ground, and as he does, he finds himself stone blind. The light blinded him. And so he, he's taken into Damascus by his friends, and and he's blinded for three days, and he ate nothing, and he drank nothing, and he just waited. Well, in the meantime, there was a, a, a Christian there by the name of Ananias, and he was reluctantly sent by God. God said, you need to go. Who, Saul? You, you're kidding me, right? No, you go to Saul. And so Ananias goes to Saul, and when he went into the house, he placed his hands upon him, and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me the same Jesus you saw on the way here, he sent me so you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And no sooner than these words were out of his mouth, something the Scripture says like scales fell from his eyes. And he could see again. He got to his feet. 
And he was baptized. And he sat down with him and he had a great meal. And eventually he became what we would call as the poster child of the Great Commission. The gospel to the Gentiles. The gospel to the world. What led to a radical transvaluation of Paul's values? Was it religion for religion's sake? Was it finding a better way to live, a, a more satisfying moral foundation? Was it, was it finding more fulfillment? Was it finding Paul's best life now? It's interesting because Acts 9.16 says, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my sake. So I don't think it was finding his best life now in terms of the way we think of it. It surely was the way God thinks of it. What was it? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus the Lord, the Messiah, the one who came to Paul, the one who revealed himself as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. In the light of Jesus, all else that he had previously treasured concerning his self-righteousness was revolting, odious dung. Everything he had misconstrued as gain was actually worse than nothing. And it brought him to a place where, as one author said, that he understood the utter futility of life without Christ. Now understand, for Christ's sake, Paul literally lost all things. He lost his place in Judaism. Um, he, he lost his place among the Pharisees. He lost his reputation. He lost his earthly possessions. He probably lost his home. And some scholars even debate that he most likely lost his inheritance as a Jew. These are no small matters to lose. And it wasn't, understand, it wasn't that Paul deemed these things or anything of this earth just as dung in and of itself. That's not the point. It's not, it's not like Paul's going around, everything is dung. You know, like, you know, like that song, the Lego movie, everything is beautiful. You know, no, no, no. This, he's not going around singing everything is dung. What he's doing is he's comparing. He is deeming that in the light of Christ as such. But only in the light of Christ. C.S. Lewis, you may remember, framed it most eloquently this way. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's what Paul is showing us here. He was too easily pleased in himself. He was too easily pleased in the things. And when he saw Christ, oh, his eyes were opened. As Paul's fundamental values are exposed before us for what they truly are and were in light of Jesus, what might we value as more worthy than Jesus? Our own self-righteousness. You know, our status at the office. Our place in the community. The great and excellent future of our children. 
shiny things of the world that we stack in our garages and have loved ones get rid of when we're dead? What about the desire to be famous, the desire to be known? What about education? What about wealth? The, 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 the issues could go on and on and on and on. What mud pies are we making are better, in Paul's language, what dung pies are we making? Paul is grabbing the collars of the Philippians and he's shaking them and he's saying, listen, Christ is the greatest treasure. Everything, everything else in comparison is stinking poo. How could he say that? Because he saw him. In his surpassing, his superior, his outstanding, his exceptional, his greater worth. What in all the earth or in the cosmos or in your life can compare to the surpassing worth of Jesus? I mean, just think about the confrontation here, the original friction that happens. Okay, here Paul is and he's, he's, he's thinking he's good enough and he's going uh, to Damascus and he comes face to face with someone who says basically, you're not good enough. And yet he feels forgiveness and love and mercy. He's the one that's going to Damascus and he's hunting down those that Jesus loved, that Jesus associates himself with so much that he says, I'm the one you're coming after. And so not only is he going after those Christians, he's going after Jesus again. I want to re-crucify you, Jesus. And what does he receive? Mercy and love. Man, do you see it? Do you understand it? Paul, Paul is smitten. <laughs> he is smitten by the love of God through Christ. He is, he is taken aback by the forgiveness. And so, in our final point, Paul takes us to an even greater depth of understanding of this as he looks at Jesus and he says, He is a treasure worth knowing. He's a treasure worth knowing. Paul tells us in the remainder of this passage that this meeting with Jesus forever changed him. It changed his disposition. It changed his thinking. It changed his focus. It changed his ambitions. All that he had was laid aside. As he became found, notice the text, in Christ. He was in Christ by grace. It was none of his own righteousness. There was nothing he could do to earn God's favor. Jesus just came to him. Just appeared to him. Look at me, live my glory. And Paul was shaken to the core. And he realized it's not by my righteousness, but only in the righteousness of Christ. And that's how Paul became a being of grace. Through that instrument of faith, as we see in verse 9. And in this grace and mercy and love, he wants to know Jesus more. You see, the reality here is it's not just a one-time meeting. The one-time meeting was never enough. Once he had tasted the glory and the mercy and the love, he wanted to know him more. Knowledge here, this knowledge is not just an academic thing. It's deeper than that. It, it includes that, but it's deeper. It, 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 it's an aspect of relationship, a term of, of intimacy. 
Paul wanted the closest possible personal relationship he could have to Christ on this earth. Now, I, I still remember it like yesterday. Kristen and I, you know, we started kind of dating. You'd have to know our story, kind of dating in October, you know. And um, after we graduated college. And so at Christmas time, I get this present and it's, and it's from her. It's from Houston. And I'm like, oh, wow. This is awesome. And so I, I break this present open and, and I'm blown away, you know. It's a guitar strap, and it was cool. It was awesome. But along with that was this note from this woman that I was falling in love with. And I guarantee you, I read that note a hundred times. And I guarantee you, after I read it a hundred times, a couple days later, I picked it up again. And not only did I read it, but I smelled it, you know, it smells like her. That's the type of love that Paul's been wooed into here. I can't get close enough to you. I want to know you more, Jesus. I want to be with you. I want your smell on me. I, I want to know your glory. That is what's going on with Paul here. You know, it is when you think about it for someone that, you know, Chris and I will be married, what, 25 years this year? 25 years this year. I still don't know her. <laughs> I'll look at her sometimes and go, who are you? <laughs> now, I do that very little. She does that practically every day. <laughs> Just to be fair. Who are you? You never stop wanting to know that person that you love. And for Paul, what he's communicating here is, is that eternity is not enough to know Jesus. Think about that. Eternity is not enough to know Jesus. This week, with the news of the first ever image of the light around the black hole, because you can't really see a black hole, you just see the light around it, okay? So, so you know that. So with that picture, of the, I call it the Eye of Sauron. I think somebody hit that right on the, the nail on the head with that thing. It looks like the Eye of Sauron out there in space, you know. It has all sorts of ramifications scientifically when it comes to Jesus who created it. And it should scream at us, come know me, come know me. As one writer put it, he said this, what... A God who would make uh, such a cosmos and reveal His glory in it and create human beings and crown us with the glory of His image, allowing us to observe the world and to see such things with our own eyes. And even, I was reading an article this week, and even science is like, how can this be? I mean, they know it is, but it, there's, science contradicts itself with the aspect of a black hole. The mystery of God screams to us. The heavens declare the glory of God. Come know me. And so I'll add to that. What a God that He revealed His own glory to us in Christ that we may know Him, the Creator of black holes, the Creator of pulsars, the Creator of galaxies, the Creator of, mo of mountains, of oceans, of flowers, of birds, of dirt, and the human heart. 
Look at what Paul says here in verses 10 and 11. In terms of his desire to know Christ, it is about that relationship, his experience in Jesus' own death and resurrection. Knowing Christ means knowing the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and the everyday events of life. These things can't be separated. The power of his resurrection in terms of everyday ramifications is known and experienced through the experience of sharing in his sufferings. And this is an inescapable part of being a Christian. The power of the resurrected Christ now operating in the believer's life. You see, I think Paul here is talking about knowing the power of that resurrection now. Not in the future. I think he's talking about that now here. As I'm living, as I'm breathing, His resurrection power is in me. And it's connected to being in suffering. You know, concerning suffering, in, in um, chapter 1, verse 29 of Philippians, Paul described believing in Jesus and suffering for His sake, a gift given to believers. Here in 3.10, it is described as becoming like Him in His death. Do you see how that's still a gift? Paul counts it an honor to share Christ's sufferings because to do so is to enter into a deeper and deeper relationship with Him. And so what we see here is that sufferings are for Christians. Suffering is for every Christian. It's going the way of the cross. It's counting all things as loss in order to gain Jesus. And in chapter 2, it's counting self as nothing for the sake of the progress of others. It is focusing on the glory of Jesus and the progress of His gospel going out and the progress of other Christians around us at the cost of our own status and glory. And this suffering is the means God uses to transform us ultimately and finally into the likeness of His Son. Here is the thing. He is inviting you. Normal, everyday you. How many of you have been called by the king, or the, well, not the king, but the queen of England? You want to come to dinner with me tonight? I don't think anybody here has. But the king of the universe is going to invite you to this table here in just a few minutes. The God of glory, the creator of all, is saying, come and know me. Come and know me. He's not asking you to know him exactly like Paul did. I think with each church, there's a different way that we know the Lord. And within that church, each individual, there's a different way in which we know the Lord. Your knowing will be different in its outworking. Yet, He calls you to know Him more and more. And remember, eternity is not enough. So do you know Him? Do you know Him as your Lord? Or are you found in Christ? In your knowing Him, have you counted all things as loss? Remember, Christ plus nothing equals everything. Do you know Him? I woke up in the middle of the night and I was thinking about this and a song just came to my mind. And I think that's what Paul's really singing here. He's singing, In the morning when I rise, In the morning when I rise, 
In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. But give me Jesus. Let us sing that song with him this week. Let us know him and his surpassing glory. Let's pray. Father, we may seek to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. When we take the full measure of your love and the cross, any worth that we think we have pales in contrast to the beauty and the wonder of knowing Jesus and his surpassing glory. Lord, may we find comfort in his wounds and life in his death in which he will, at the end of all things, render us perfect forever and ever and evermore. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.